Well, it is good to be back among you this week. As I wrote in the email yesterday, it seems like every time we miss a week for ministry elsewhere or whatever, um, our hearts ache because we miss you uh, so much. And so it's good to be back with you today. Um, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We do preach through books of the Bible expositionally here at Grace Bible Church, and we have been in the book of Ephesians for many months, and we are entering chapter 5. You'll notice that we're taking seven verses, if you look at the outline inside of your bulletin, um, which seems huge compared to the pace we have been going, Um, but we will be looking at verses 1 to 7, and the title of the message today is Be Imitators of God. Be Imitators of God. Paul's practical instruction continues here before us. Uh, He encourages a life of humility, a life of loving those, loving others sacrificially, walking in love and purity. And maybe you're reflecting on this past week, all the turmoil that this world is in. If you watch any of the news whatsoever, you see the political uncertainty, not only of our own country, but what's going on in other places. Rioting in places in China over the last few weeks. Rioting and Tunisia, and then now in Egypt, and Nigeria, and, and there's political unrest, there's turmoil. You look at our own country, you see corrupt judges, and police officers, and businessmen, and all for the sake of self to cheat someone else. The media is as ungodly as ever, and they're very clear about pushing their anti-Christian worldly agenda. So what, what, what the Word of God does for us as we come back is it realigns our biblical worldview. It helps to realign what should we think about these things. How can we live in a society and in a culture that's manifesting such wickedness as we live in today? Christ in His kingdom is triumphant. Jesus Christ reigns today on the throne. He is sovereign over all things. And sometimes... We can forget that when we're caught up in the here and now and when we see the depth of the perversity all around us. We shouldn't be shocked. The Apostle Paul wrote in the last letter that he wrote in 2 Timothy, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So We shouldn't be shocked as we see these things going on around us. But what we need is to have the proper mindset. And Paul sets that out for us today in our text. Let's read verses 1 to 7 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, 
that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Let's go to the Lord and ask His help once again. Our Father and our God, we ask that You would hear our cry even now as we have come together to meet in this fashion in the corporate worship of Jehovah. Lord, we pray that You would hear us. We thank You that You have heard the songs and the prayers that have been lifted up already. But Lord, we pray that now as the Word of God is opened up, that You would give each one understanding. That You would send the Holy Spirit. That You would help the one speaking. Lord, that we could leave this place some time from now and say, surely God has met with us here. We have heard from God. So Lord, we pray for Your special help. Remove distractions. Remove cares. Anything that might distract. um, Remove that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a two-minute summary of the book of Ephesians. What has taken place. The chapters 1 through 3 set forth our abundant riches in the Lord Jesus Christ, our wealth in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1, halfway through the book, there's a marked change. In light of all of this wealth, this is how you walk. This is how you live. And he says in four one, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In chapter 4, and verse 17, to the end of chapter 4, he gives very practical instruction. He says again in verse 17, that you are to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. You're going to walk no longer like that. In verses 25 to 32, a more succinct session, uh, section, he gives the ethical exhortations there. Lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one. Don't be angry. Do not become bitter and resentful. Don't grieve the Spirit of God by which you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but rather words that build up, words that edify. And so, the encouragement at the end of verse 32 is to forgive each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven us. So as we come to this section here, the previous section from 17 to the end of 4, where there was a comparison between the old man and the new man. Remember, put off the old self, put on the new self. And what does that look like? Now he's going to set forth additional comparisons or contrasting believers with sinful outsiders in this section from 5.1 to 5.14 or 5.3 to 14, depending on where you break it off. And again, the key word is walk, peripateho, which simply means how you live. Um, And so that's the key word we'll see repeated this week and next week. Uh, The imagery which we'll see more next week is the contrast between light and darkness. And so as we look at our text today, I've broken it up into three uh, simple sections. First of all, walk in sacrificial love. Secondly, walk in purity of speech and conduct. And lastly, all idolaters, which we'll explain, will surely experience the wrath of God. So first of all, Paul says, therefore, in light of everything I've written already, therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. It's a command. 
Be imitators of God. And, and, and it's the word for imitate is where we get mimic. That's the, the root word there. Imitate God. Now you might ask, how in the world can we begin to imitate someone that's altogether transcendent and removed from us? Someone that's altogether perfectly holy and pure. And we know nothing of that. How can we begin to imitate Him? It's like Isaiah when he saw the vision uh, there in Isaiah 6. He says, woe is me. Rather than try to imitate, what we want to do is fall on our knees like Peter and say, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. How can I ever begin to imitate a perfectly holy God? But we need to approach this with wisdom. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture. We come with reverence and awe. We can obey this imperative. We can obey what Paul is telling us to do in some fashion. Consider this. First of all, we were created in the image of God. Nothing else in this world has that claim, but man is created in the image of God. Furthermore, His Spirit dwells on the inside of us. As we saw, don't grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed. The word sealed is marked out, a stamp of authenticity. We are truly His. And furthermore, which he brought up earlier in chapter 4, is we have a transformed new life. The things that we were formerly shackled to and enslaved to are broken, and now we have a renewed nature whereby we can begin to reflect these things. How can we imitate God? Well, not in raising the dead, not in speaking into existence that which was nothing. We can't do that, right? We're not infinite. We're not transcendent. But we can live a life of love. That's where Paul's going. We can extend mercy to others. Those attributes by which we can reflect. We can be holy. Be holy just as He is holy. In fact, if you study the New Testament carefully, we're told again and again by Jesus and His apostles that we are to imitate God. Jesus Himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Paul says, be imitators of Me to the church at Corinth just as I imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote to the church in Thessalonica and said, be imitators of the churches of God in Christ in Judea. And so we're told to imitate. There's others that I could list there. Imitate me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. Follow my example. And Paul here is saying, God has set forth a wonderful example. And if you take the whole book of Ephesians, a wonderful example, therefore, be imitators of God. And he says, as beloved children. This is not meant to be a comparison, but this is the basis of the command. You are children of God if you're in Christ. And so therefore, just as earthly children imitate their earthly fathers, therefore spiritual children can imitate their spiritual father. We have an obligation because we have been adopted into the family of God. Chapter 1 and verse 5, we were predestined He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. You see, we're not just, you know, we're not some foster child that's just in a home and we hope we don't mess up because we're going to be kicked out if we mess up in some way. No, we really are the children 
of God. We're not the Son of God. We are sons and daughters of God. When a young couple has their first baby, um, or their fifth baby, (laughs) some of us are, someone's expecting here, their fifth baby, what happens when the child's born? You go to pay a visit. Oh, does he look like mom? Does he look like dad? Who does he look, who does he look like? Does he look more like mom, right? And, and, and that's the topic of conversation. But spiritually, we ask the same thing. As we look at one another, who does he look like? Does he look more like God or more like Satan? More, is there light reflecting or is there darkness because of a sinful life? Children should imitate their father. And so we are to imitate our Heavenly Father. Alexander the Great once discovered a coward in his army who was also named Alexander. This is what he told the soldier. Renounce your cowardice or renounce your name. (laughs) I don't want any cowards that have the name Alexander in my army. And so since we take the name of Christ, Christian, we are to reflect Christ in some way. Secondly, in verse 2, walk with the same love with which Christ has loved you. Look at verse 2. And walk and love just as Christ also loved you. Verse 2 tells us how we can be imitators of God. Do you see that? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love. Again, another command here. And this idea of love is a repeated theme several times. Um, through chapter 4 and 5, back in chapter 4 and verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Chapter 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is our head, even Christ. So we're to walk in love. And the motivation, clearly here, is just as Christ has loved you. That's the motivation. We're to walk in love just as. Kathos. It's the same argument he used in verse 32 of chapter 4. Look up just two verses. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So why am I to forgive that brother who illed me? Because I've been forgiven so great. I've been forgiven a mountain of debt so I can surely forgive the petty little offenses that come my way. I can overlook in love. I can forgive as He would come to seek my forgiveness. And so the motive here is just as we've been forgiven so much. And here too, we are to walk in love because He has loved us so much. The verse goes on to say that He gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. That's a sacrificial love. And again, so we're to walk this way. This should be the general direction, the general course of our life should be love. Jesus said in John 13, you remember the disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. So this needs to characterize our thoughts, our motives, our words, and our deeds. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, that we would prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Well, how did Christ love us? I jumped a little bit ahead there. He says, 
He loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice for sin. You see, He is the model. He is the ground of how we are to love one another. Divine love is unconditional love. And it depends entirely on the One who loves and not on merit. In other words, I don't tell my wife in the morning when I give her a kiss, I love you if you'll love me back today. It's not... You know, that's not the kind of love that's being talking, spoken of here. Christ's love was unconditional because each of you deserved nothing but wrath. And yet He went to the cross to die for His people, His chosen people. And so our love should seek to reflect that. Not based on how we're treated, we are to walk in love. God's love is not only forgiving and unconditional, but it is self-sacrificing. Paul uses sacrificial language here to point to the work of Christ on the cross. And really, it's not just the cross, it's the whole incarnation, which we studied a couple months ago. His whole life on this earth leading to that great event, that atonement on the cross. And so, costly, sacrificial love should characterize our love for others. Those of us who profess faith in Christ, where's the practical way that this is going to show itself? Oh, I love God. I'm a great lover of God. I go to the mountain and I do this and I go to the beach and I pray for hours and hours and hours and I love God. No, that's great. That's good. Keep that up. But if you're really doing that, where's it going to flesh itself out in the horizontal relationships? That's where it's going to demonstrate itself. Again, chapter 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We're coming up on the section in just a few weeks. The great section of marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Three times he has to tell them that. Wives, submit to your husbands. Again, he's, he's moving to, that's about as concrete and about as basic and practical as you can get as where this is fleshed out. And those of you who are single don't think, well, I can check out when we get to that part because I'm not married. Well, someday you might be married and you probably will be married and you probably want to be married. So you should pay special attention when we get to that point. But notice that Jesus gave himself up. The word means to hand over, uh, a, a total surrender. And that is exactly what Jesus did. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Notice in verse 18, he says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This commandment I have received from my Father. So Jesus gave Himself up voluntarily, willingly, sacrificially on behalf of unworthy sinners. No one took it forcibly from Him. He took the initiative. And the phrase here, He gave Himself up for us. The idea there is instead of us. It's to pair. It has the idea of substitution. That He stood in our place when He was paying for our sins on the cross. Paul alludes to this in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life 
which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So he was a willing victim. He became a curse for us, according to the law. Philippians 2, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Without reading that whole section, an attitude of humility, an attitude of sacrifice, even to the point of death, a sacrificial love. This is the attitude we are to have. This is how we are to walk. And the the very end here where he says, as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma, simply communicates the fact that his atoning work for sinners was successful. It was completely successful. Some of these, there's some nuances of this in Psalm 40. We don't have time to turn there, but it's sacrifice and offering. And that's quoted by the writer into the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.4, it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then the writer goes to Psalm 40 and quotes this section here, which I'm not going to quote. And then in, right after that, in 10.10 in of the book of Hebrews, he says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. And it's the same idea here. And Christ, and the fact that he adds this as a fragrant aroma to God, Christ's atonement was an aroma to God. It was well-pleasing to Him. You know, when you go to the mall occasionally, even some of us men have been in a Bed Bath & Beyond store at some point, more than likely, but what happens as soon as you walk in there, you're almost like punched in the face with odors and aromas, right? And they're usually pleasant. They're nice. They're a candle store or something, you know. They're pleasant. They're nice. They're a fragrant aroma. And isn't it amazing that as we read Leviticus 1, I hope you were listening, the the burnt offering and how that points to Jesus Christ. And each time, have you ever smelt burning flesh? It's not a pleasant thing. It's not a pleasant thing. I know Bruce has because he's a fire chaplain. And um, it's not a pleasant thing. Even an animal or hair burning or something has that odor. But it says with those burnt offerings that it was a soothing aroma, well-pleasing to God. That prefigured the work of Christ. What He would do. The great, the final, the last offering on our behalf. And again and again in Leviticus 1, 2, and 3 with the burnt and the grain and the peace offerings. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. So Jesus' sacrifice of Himself is the supreme demonstration of love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us so much. Well, first, to walk in sacrificial love therefore, and thereby being imitators of God. Now, verses 3 and 4, walk in purity of life and speech. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. First of all, we'll look at the first part of each of these verses. Don't allow impurity and greed to even be named among you. Paul now directs our attention from the idea of a self-sacrificial love to a self-indulgent 
immorality and impurity. You see the contrast there? It's a stark contrast. Um, Sexual sins certainly dominate this section. We'll see that as we go into next week as well. But verse 11 of this chapter, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things that are done by them in secret. It seems that sexual immorality is, is, is the theme of this from here to verse 14, largely the theme. And Satan has a perversion for everything, doesn't he? He says, walk in sacrificial love, just as Christ has, has loved us, right? And so Satan says, well, no, no, I'll show you what love is. It's like this. And, and isn't, doesn't the world confuse lust with love? Counterfeits of what true, unconditional love is. Worldly love is filled with conditional love, right? If I get this, then I'll give back. We see that everywhere around us, this sappy soap operas and sitcoms that fill television, the Hollywood movies, all of this stuff. And Paul lists these things here. He lists three in verse 3 and three things in verse 4. And nearly in every letter that Paul wrote, somewhere he lists the deeds of the flesh and sinful behaviors. And in the NIV in verse 3, it actually says, not even a hint of immorality. It's an emphatic negative. Um, and I like that. Josh Harris, on his book on sexual purity, we went through a few years back with the men's group, that's, that was the title of the book. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. Don't let it be named among you. Well, he, let's go through these three words briefly. Immorality is what he lists first in the New American Standard Version. It's simply the word pornea. You can see what the root of that word has involved with it. It's any kind of illicit sexual intercourse and probably goes beyond that. Do you think that sin is serious? Little adultery, little fornication, do you think that's serious? It's serious. If you claim to take the name of Christ, it's serious. Very clearly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's the word there, nor idolaters, and he lists a whole lot of sins there, which we're not going to for now, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. You can't be enslaved to these things. You can't have a regular practice of sexual immorality and expect to end up in heaven someday. It won't happen. The Bible says again and again, But then he goes on and he says, any impurity, in case somehow you can kind of get around, well, you know, is this really what pornea means? You know, I can do any impurity. It's getting a little more broader now, right? And the idea there is simply moral corruption and vileness and unrestrained sexual behavior, immoral passions, thoughts, fantasies, and lustings, and all of that would fall under here. So you see, First it was more by practice, and then now it's more in the mind here. And then he says greed, the lust for more. And we saw this earlier in chapter 4. It's the idea of a sexual covetousness. And does that sound strange to you? It sounds strange to say it, but as we look at our culture that we live in, is that something that's so unusual? No. No. There's a thirst, there's a greed, there's an insatiable desire to have more corruption, 
more sexual illicit behavior. O'Brien says, Paul moves from the acts of immorality to the inner spring, greed, that insatiable desire to have more, even the coveting of someone else's body for selfish gratification. Look up in chapter 4 and verse 19. He's talking about the Gentiles and the futility of their mind, and he's reminding the Ephesians, this is where you used to be, but you're not there anymore. And he goes on as he gives this portrait of a pagan, as I called it. But in verse 19, for they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You see, you could put the period after every kind of impurity, and that's a statement of fact. But he adds that word which says, and there's a longing for more. There's not a satisfaction in that because there's always going to be the craving for more. It's like the drug addict that has a little bit of heroin at first and then it has to be more and more and more until he needs so much for a fix he's got to be robbing banks. And that's the idea in this area as well. It's very grievous how many Christian men fall into this sin. Adultery, cheating on their wives. It's grievous and how it has even infiltrated the church. Do you know some statistics say one in eight pastors have had an adulterous relationship at some time during their ministry? And then the statistic goes on, something like, I think it's 37% have had some inappropriate relationship with someone in their church. This is a culture we live in. (laughs) That's why you have to have standards. This is why you have to have rules. This is not allowable. I'm not going to be alone, you know, and all of that. You have to have these things. The Bible commands sexual purity, especially within the context of marriage. The Lord has given a productive outflow of that, an outlet for that in the context of marriage. Jesus said that even our thoughts must be pure or we're committing spiritual adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator brought up this idea. It's the cookie jar syndrome. Picture mom with the apron on, just cook fresh chocolate chip cookies. Put them in the cookie jar, right? They're all in there. Little Johnny says, can I have a cookie? It's an hour till dinner time. No, after dinner you may have one. She's off in the next room doing something, and she hears the lid to the cookie jar rattling. What, Johnny, what are you doing in there? And he says something along the lines, my hand is in the cookie jar resisting temptation. (laughs) You see, we have open cookie jars all around us. And all too many of us just want to see what it feels like inside. I won't touch the cookie, but I'll be so close to it that I'm that close to falling. We have to be careful. Movies and billboards all around us. Pornography in every form that's out there, especially over the internet. Seductive ads and so forth that come to your mailbox delivered by a government postal service. You know, it's everywhere around and you have to put shields on your eyes. You have to have standards that you're not going to begin to entertain these things. Furthermore, our culture is so depraved that even if All of those things aren't there. You can find a willing participant anywhere if you're willing to relinquish your values. Paul is addressing Christians who live 
in this sinful port city of Ephesus. Uh, it was probably a circular letter, but in and around Ephesus, the major city there in Asia Minor, and he's addressing these, these converts who had come out of this sinful behavior. The dominant religion of the day was the worship of the goddess Diana, which we've talked about before. And what did that involve? Ritual prostitution. You're worshiping her as you engage in prostitution. That's the background that they're coming from. And you can imagine how radical this teaching is when Paul would bring the biblical teaching. The sexual perversion of that day was embraced and exalted. That's funny. Kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? It's embraced and it's exalted largely around us. Well, look at chapter or verse 4. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting. And he compares those up against the giving of thanks. So these are sins of speech. Filthiness. Um, BDAG, lexicon says, it's behavior that flouts social and moral standards, shamefulness and obscenity. Okay? Filthiness. Secondly, silly talk. Foolish speaking. It's moralagia, so it's the root word with moron in the front, which simply means foolish talk. Proverbs 15 says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The third is coarse jesting. It's the idea of vulgar, along these lines, repeating things that you've heard, um, double innuendos and that kind of thing. And so Paul condemns this. He condemns the very practice and the very insatiable greed for more immorality and impurity. And then he condemns the practice of even speaking about that or allowing your mouth to even talk about that. And really, at the end of the day, we know where these sins come from, don't they? They come from our hearts. Jesus said, From within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts and fornication and thefts and murders and adulteries. And then, the second half of each of these verses, be an example of godliness and speech by giving thanks instead. The entire, body tell, the entire Bible tells us how to live rightly, how to live properly. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. Don't let these things even be named among you as is proper for the saints. The end of verse 4 which is not fitting. These things are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. What is fitting for those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ? They've been set apart and marked as His special children, and they are marked to be holy. Chapter 1 of verse 4, I mean, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. It's not fitting to engage in that kind of behavior if you're taking the name of Christ. It's not fitting, period, because you're breaking God's moral law. But especially for those who take the name of Christ. The Bible says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the standard. That's the standard. And we can't be holy in and of ourselves, but because Christ has imputed His righteousness to us, and our sin was imputed to Him, we are seen as holy. And that's not license to go and sin. 
That's responsibility to live a life of gratitude to God. See, what used to cause our culture to blush is embraced as virtuous now. The raunchier, the filthier, the better is what our culture says. And we must stem that tide. He says, but rather the giving of thanks there at the end of verse 4. Um, it's, this is, in the original especially, it's, it's, it, he could have said, but giving of thanks, or rather giving of thanks, but he has both words. It's to emphasize a huge contrast here. The child of God should be those who are characterized by giving of thanks. All six of these vices are really contrasted to thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is almost a synonym for living the Christian life, because the Christian life the Christian knows that he's, it's not his own works that has saved him. It is the grace of God. And so he lives a life of gratitude each and every day, wanting to love the people of God, wanting to serve the people of God, wanting to serve Him in every opportunity that he has. It's a response of gratitude because of that sacrificial love that Christ gave us and demonstrated for us on the cross One commentator, Holden, says, whereas sexual impurity and covetousness both express self-centered acquisitiveness, thanksgiving is the exact opposite, and so the antidote required, it is the recognition of God's generosity. Just think for a moment of the endless, wholesome, edifying speech that one can say in regards to giving thanks to God. Think of how long we can talk. We don't have to give in to filthiness and coarse jesting and all of that. A thankful spirit can speak for years about God's mercies. Some people see the glass half empty all the time. Even though they're Christians, it's pessimistic, pessimistic. I can tend to sometimes lean in that way. No, I need to be reminded that we've got all things in Christ. And our wealth that he set forth for us, even in this very letter, Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world. We've got so much to look forward to. So much that is coming. Well, we've seen that we're to walk in sacrificial love. We're to walk in purity. And now more briefly, verses 5 and 6, all idolaters will experience the wrath of God. Let's read this again. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or a covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. The impure and covetous have no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting, the three sins named in verse 3 are repeated in verse 5. They're also repeated in several of Paul's list, including the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. But notice why he begins verse 5. For this you know with certainty. To translate that woodenly, it would be this you know knowing. He uses both words, both of the most popular words in the Greek, to emphasize his point here. Both verbs. Um, The first means absolute, positive, beyond doubt knowledge. The second is referring to experimental knowledge. I think probably this has to do with the idea that the Apostle Paul labored there for three years and pleaded and preached to them. So you know about sins of impurity and immorality because I've spoken against the whole 
you know, prostitution ritual worship and so forth. And I think that's the idea here. Sexual lust is an idolatrous obsession. It places self-gratification or another person as the central importance of your life. So you can see why he says, who is an idolater? See, if you're immoral, impure, covetous, really what the root sin is, is idolatry. What does God think of idolaters? <laughs> again and again, we read the whole Old Testament again and again in the New Testament. Not good. Ultimately, what ends up happening is what Paul says in Romans 1, you worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. David Paulison, um, modern-day Christian counselor, says our idols both covet what we do not have and hold on for dear life to what we do have. So you can see that all of us are guilty of idolatry in one way or another. Paul is clear in our text. A lifestyle that is characterized by these sins is totally inconsistent with true biblical Christianity. You are lost and still in your sins if you practice these things in a habitual way. And he says right here, he has no, none of these people, if you practice these things, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. It's interesting that he says both of those. I think it's the idea, you don't have an inheritance today, and you don't have an inheritance in the future. That's probably the idea here. You will be excluded from that. This life and the life to come. But if you are a child of the King, if you are truly in Christ, if you've truly embraced Him by faith, and, and He's your Savior, your only Savior, your only hope of salvation, you have an inheritance that is indescribable. Something that we can't even begin to imagine. Paul says, things which eye has not seen nor ear has heard, or which has entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. We begin First Peter in our Sunday school class today. We'll be in that for the next several months. Right in the beginning ch uh, chapter, we'll be looking at this next week. It says, we were born again, essentially, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. So you have an inheritance. If you're in Christ, you're not enslaved to these things. Surely you will inherit. And then verse 6, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Notice he says there, let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words are simply words that lack truth. And he says, let no one deceive you when they say, no, no, no. Don't you know Christ's blood covers all of your sins? You can live however you want. Go ahead with the prostitute. Go ahead with this and that. No, that's deception if you fall into that. Someone might say, God's wrath is only reserved for the murderers. No, you can. No, no, no. In fact, in Colossians 2.8, chapter 2 in general, Paul addresses a similar theme here, but in 2.8 he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. So empty words, words that are void of truth. Don't be deceived. So if you practice these things, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But the wrath of God, notice, 
He says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Present tense, right? It reminds me of Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Present tense, not in its fullest sense. The wrath will be so much worse in eternity, but it is already revealed even now. And Notice how he says sons of disobedience. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 2 here. He's talking about being dead in our trespasses and sins. This is what we used to be, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let no one deceive you. Now, I just want to say that what Paul is saying here isn't that if you ever slipped up into some impurity or immorality, that there's no way you could be saved. That passage in 1 Corinthians 6 goes on to say, it's such were some of you. Such were some of you before we came to Christ. And if a Christian slips up in one area, but it's not the habitual pattern of his life, it's not that you've lost your salvation or that you cannot be saved. Remember what we're talking about here. The idea to live. This is the general course of our life is to please Him and to put off those things and not to have those things as a part of our life. Well, let's consider just a couple of thoughts of application. First of all, verse 7. Therefore, in light of all that, do not be partakers with them. Do not be partakers with them. Be ye separate, lest you become like them. Point them to Christ instead. This word partaker he used up in chapter 3 and verse 6, um, where he talks about the Gentiles being fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise. What he's saying here is don't be a fellow partaker in wickedness. Consider your ways and seek to imitate God. Live a life of love. I know it can be hard. We live in a wicked world. We're cruelly treated. Christians are being persecuted. We have it relatively easy here. Our greatest enemy is the flesh and the devil um, around us and the world trying to conform us into its mold. But we need to seek, and the motive is that Christ demonstrated such sacrificial love for us. Is that not what greater motive do you need to live a life of sacrificial love? You need to remember like what Peter says at the end of his second letter, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, in the end, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have no strength to be pure. You have no strength to live a pure life before him because you're still enslaved to sin. Your hand is in all multiple cookie jars because you are enslaved to sin. And maybe you're enslaved to sexual sin. 
there is hope. The addiction can be broken. I can tell you about testimony after testimony that I'm aware of and that I've helped people with. It can be broken. Sensuality is a serious sin. God does not wink at it. He does not say, well, that's okay. He didn't mean it. No. And beware, some of you young people, your parents can explain this later, and some of you younger adults and some of you old adults, pornography can be a powerful addiction. I see a few heads nodding by testimony. It can be a powerful addiction. Don't crack the door. Leave the door shackled and locked so that you don't open up the door. Because once you open up the door, it's so easy in a time of weakness to blow it open a little more, a little more, a little more. I hope you understand the illustration that I'm trying to give. There is hope for change, though. God is in the business of transforming. The Apostle Paul himself was a murderer and hated Christians and became the great Apostle Paul, instrumental in planting numerous churches and in the conversion of many. There is hope for change. To begin to put off the deeds of wickedness and to put on righteousness. Once His Spirit is inside of you, He will guide you. He will help you in these things. But you must first recognize you're a sinner and you deserve nothing but the wrath that Paul just mentioned here. Confess your sins. Every one of them that you can remember. Be detailed in your confession. A confession is not this. Forgive me for my sin and Jesus come into my heart. Doesn't want to hear that. He knows everything. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows everything. But He wants to hear the cry of His people, assuming that you might be elect if you come to Him confessing, confessing, confessing. Cry out in repentance. Beg for transformation and renewal. Trust that He paid for your sins on the cross and He will save you. May the Lord help us, believers, to live righteously in this perverse generation. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to look into Your Word. We thank You that it is practical, that we can relate to it, that it's not something that's far and removed. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives in sacrificial love. Pray that you would help us to demonstrate that in our horizontal relationships, in the workplace, in the marketplace, in our neighborhoods, in the church, in the various ministries of the church, and even in our own families. And Lord, may we never give in to this immorality and sensual lifestyle. May our lips, as we've been reminded to put off falsehood, we've been reminded to not let unwholesome words come out of our mouth already in chapter 4 and now, that we guard our lips to not allow obscenities and sexually um, related speech to come out of our mouth in a sinful way. Lord, we pray that you would embolden us, quicken us, live lives that glorify you and lord if there's any here that are enslaved to these types of sins lord we pray that you would bring deliverance we pray lord that you would first work in the heart we pray that if anyone is struggling with these things that they would seek accountability and prayer and lord that you would bring about change not so that that person can boast but lord so that you can be glorified in jesus name amen